Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, I'm John Molesky. Welcome back to another episode of America's 360. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, it was a devastating double gut punch. Last week, Hurricane Iota, the most powerful storm of the season, made landfall in Nicaragua as a deadly Category 4 storm. Iota was the 30th named storm, the 13th hurricane, and the sixth major hurricane of the record-breaking 2020 Atlantic hurricane season. It brought heavy rainfall and widespread flooding to Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala, and it's left dozens dead and many more missing. Just two weeks earlier, Hurricane Ada devastated the region, leaving flooding, mudslides, and widespread power outages in its wake. It also caused deaths and major property destruction. And to make matters worse, all of this is happening in the midst of a surge of the COVID-19 pandemic. The countries of Central America are facing a large-scale humanitarian disaster. In this episode of America's 360, we'll discuss the impact of Hurricane Iota and Ada on Central America. What implications does this crisis have on immigration? How will it affect the spread of COVID-19? And is the rising number of storms a trend that will continue as a result of climate change? Our panel of experts will explore these questions and more. So let's meet them. Say hello to Argentina Project Director, Benjamin Gadad. How are you, John? Well, thank you, Benjamin. Brazil Institute Director, Ricardo Zuniga. Hi, John. Hey, Ricardo. Canada Institute Director, Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour. Hey, Chris. Latin American Program Director, Cindy Arnson. Greetings, John. Hi, Cindy. And Mexico Institute Director, Duncan Wood. Lovely to be with you as always, John. Thanks, great to have you, Duncan. The roundtable is joined today by two special guests. Gina Kawasarita is a Vindanta Foundation Wilson Center Fellow. She joins us from Honduras. Hello, Gina. Hey, John, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, great to have you here. And Nicaraguan journalist and founder and director of El Confidencial, Carlos Fernando Chamara is also with us. Hello, Carlos. Hello, thank you for having me in this program. Uh, the pleasure is ours, Carlos. So to get things started, we're gonna turn things over to Ricardo. Ricardo, all yours, take it away. Thanks very much, John. So Gina, Carlos Fernando, I think everyone uh, around the world saw the images of, of those uh, both these storms approaching, and it was impossible not to be reminded of the impact of Hurricane Mitch uh, more than two decades ago now, and what that really meant for uh, all of Central America, but in particular, the countries that were impacted by these very storms again. I think there had been an expectation that we wouldn't see something like this for decades, and in fact, we had two, one followed after another that had a similar startling impact fortunately with much less loss of life than we saw under Mitch. But really the first question we wanted to start off with, uh, Gina and Carlos Fernando, Gina, I'll start with you. What does this storm mean for Honduras in terms of its overall impact on the country? Uh, to start, thank you for, for having us for this invitation. And like you said, we had two hurricanes impact Central America, particularly Honduras and Nicaragua in the span of two weeks. So between November 4th and November 16th, we had nonstop rain, uh, which left quite frankly a desolate and apocalyptic panorama with 100 registered deaths so far, there could be more. 
Statistics say that around 4 million people will be affected and displaced. Thousands of hectares of crops destroyed, countless bridges and roads completely shattered. The country is disconnected right now and thousands of houses have been knocked down and destroyed as well. And like you said, um, maybe this two hurricanes have been less devastating than many past disasters like Hurricane Mitch, which in 1998 killed more than 11,000 people across Central America. But it comes at a worse time and it adds to the misery caused by the pandemic, which we've had for, for almost a year now and makes it more dangerous. Just to give you a few numbers, we have more than 50 bridges down across Honduras, 120 roads blocked, uh, countless schools and hospitals flooded, uh, the transmission and electrical distribution lines are down for over 500,000 people. And the regions that have been hardest um, hit by the flooding are in the northern part of the country in a city called San Pedro Sula, or across the Valle de Sula as it's, as it's known which concentrates most of the agricultural, livestock, and industrial production of the country. And it's actually considered the engine of the Honduran economy. Um, I always like to compare Honduras to, to Ecuador, where you have Quito as the political capital and Guayaquil as the economic capital. So that's what San Pedro Sula is for Honduras, like the industrial capital. And all of this devastation has dismantled all these infrastructure that, that was rebuilt after Hurricane Mitch in 1998. So 22 years ago, and it's a reflection how millions of dollars that were poured and received back then in the concept of aid um, was definitely not used properly. We can all see poignant images that reveal the poverty and the misery that both the pandemic and now both of these hurricanes have left in the region and that represent a great leap backward and a setback for the country, uh, for the region really, for of, of about two decades. I mean, I would even dare to say that we are in the same place we were uh, back in 1998, unfortunately. And storm damage amounts to around 250 billion lempiras, which is the local currency. And this translates to more than $10 billion. Uh, and this is the amount of the entire national budget of Honduras for 2021. This is not taking into account uh, around 1 million people that will be unemployed in a country where you know, informal employment is, is so commonplace. And so to have one more million people in a country of 9 million uh, unemployed is a hard hit. And according to ECLAC, around 7 million Honduras are expected to fall back into extreme poverty. So it's, it's really a devastating um, scenario. Uh, GDP growth is expected to decline in around negative 10%, something the country has never experienced, not even during Hurricane Mitch. It was estimated to be negative 7.5 because of the pandemic. And now it could even reach a negative 13 decrease in, in GDP. So this is around 3% of, of the total uh, GDP. And just to close, I think the Central American region in general continues to suffer from the same deficiencies in preventive infrastructure, in reconstructive infrastructure, in alert systems, because the government is not prepared and in Honduras particularly, there was a national holiday planned uh, during the first hurricane, ETA, and the government did not even cancel it, knowing that a hurricane was already in national territory. So I think it's, it's just very disorganized and um, citizens and the victims of all these phenomena are really starting to wonder where all the billions of dollars are really going. So this could really create political unrest. It's already starting to build up 
because every year that a storm or a hurricane hits the country, hits the region, we end up reaching out for help to the international community for funds, for emergency relief funds. So these reactive policies are just definitely too little too late. You know, that's a really devastating picture. And thank you so much for uh, sharing those numbers with us, because I think that they really tell a story that has not been fully absorbed by the international community. Later in this discussion, we're going to talk about some of the implications, not just for Honduras, but for the region and for the Americas as a whole, stemming from, from that disaster. Carlos Fernando, uh, obviously Nicaragua experienced this in a, in a slightly different way, although with no less devastation. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what these two storms meant uh, for Nicaragua? Thank you. I, I think there is first uh, humanitarian impact, the emergency that this represents for thousands of families that lost their houses, both in the North Atlantic part of Nicaragua, in uh, the city of Bilwi, Huaspan, or also in the northern part in Matagalpa, or even in the south, in the Pacific, in the area of Rivas and different places. So even though this was a hurricane that was focused on a specific trajectory, it really had a national impact. And uh, we had more than 23 people dead. There are additional three missing. Uh, most of them as a result of mudslides and when the rivers, uh, not, not directly probably by the impact of the winds in the Atlantic coast. But, uh, and now all these people are in, in a situation of emergency, in, some of them are in refuge. There's a lot of concern about the efficiency about attending them and a lot of uh, complaints about the way in which the government is attending the emergency. Secondly, there's the impact on infrastructure, maybe about 1,000 kilometers, not paved roads, but basic roads that have been damaged, a lot of bridges, the impact on the crops, particularly the beans crops, uh, and also the environmental impact. Uh, I can't give you precise figures. I don't think there has been done an evaluation, and on the other hand, there is an additional problem about this situation. It's not only taking place as a sequence of two hurricanes in two weeks, and in a country that have been impacted by COVID-19, but also this is a country that has been going through three consecutive years of economic recession in a situation of a police state. I mean, there is lack of transparency in Nicaragua. When our reporters tried to cover uh, the story of the hurricane, and when we went to Matagalpa to talk to the, the survivors, well, we were expelled by the police because there is no freedom of the press in Nicaragua to report the truth. So there is lack of transparency. There is lack of freedom of the press and freedom of mobilization. And when, when I was watching the previous days, the news about the international community trying to respond to this emergency, both the, uh, the World Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank or the Central American Integration Bank trying to put together funds. My first question was, how is this aid is going to be organized and channeled to Nicaragua without freedom of the press? 
in a situation where there is no uh, democratic freedoms under, under state control that lack of the minimum uh, democratic guarantees for accountability. Th these are the, the main questions that I fear for the future. But we don't know really the, the dimension of the impact. There is lack of information and lack of transparency. Cindy Arnson. Yeah, if I could just jump in here. Gina, you made reference to Hurricane Mitch, and one of the consequences of Hurricane Mitch um, was an enormous amount of internal displacement in Honduras, people going from the countryside into cities. And I think it's often um, seen as a contributing factor to um, the rise of gangs and um, in a context of rapid urbanization and the lack of opportunity for young people. Um, and I'm wondering if you see other enormous social impacts coming from, from the hurricane. And, and sort of related question is, do you think that since the international community already contributed a lot of money to post-Hurricane Mitch reconstruction, whether there might be a reluctance to um, contribute with the same degree of generosity. Yeah, so I think I'll start with the second question. Um, I think that most multilateral financial institutions are still focused on fighting the pandemic, so definitely resources will be limited. And I think um, governance needs to be more preventive in these countries in order to be able to receive these funds. Let's remember that Honduras is not even part of the Millennium Challenge Corporation because the government didn't use uh, the funds in a, in a transparent way. Donor countries or, or just uh, any financial institution uh, needs to hold these countries accountable for the money that they are either donating or lending because that enormous amount of resources has to be tangible somehow, which it, it hasn't been, uh, you know, in infrastructure or, or it has to be reflected in preventive mitigation and adaptation because I think more than ever we've seen that climate behavior will require a sustained international response with like obvious local responsibility and that green elements need to be present in all of the economic recovery plans to ensure that this stimulus investments or stimulus packages will support both economic and environmental outcomes to generate more climate resiliency. Just to go to your, to your second question, I, I think people feel so frustrated with the government and levels of trust are so low that most of the help that has been channeled by humanitarian organizations like NGOs, the Red Cross, they haven't even been channeled through Honduras's um, embassies or consulates or representations abroad, but through civil society organizations like this humanitarian organizations partner with civil society organizations and not with the government. And I think this just reflects how the government of Honduras has a serious problem of lack of trust, both domestically and with the international community, which creates a greater challenge at a time where requesting funds is just scarce. And I believe that this context will probably reconfigure the political year we have. So 2021 is a political year for Honduras with elections. And it, it may lead to massive migration. Going through your first question, Hurricane Mitch definitely caused domestic or internal uh, displacement. But I think that now we have as I said, 250,000 hectares of production lost, palm oil, banana, coffee, just completely devastated. So this threatens food security. And I think that the number of climate migrants will rise because now we have a, a title for it. And, and that's what they're called. They're climate migrants or climate refugees, if you will. 
and they will definitely rise and it's not even going to be uh, internally within Honduras or Central America. I think migration to the United States will peak and it will be accelerated because even before the pandemic, we had seen all these caravans of migrants and now with the hurricanes. And, you know, you have organizations like the UN, the World Food Program, that publish how one of the main reasons to emigrate for the past decade has been lack of food. So I think um, the, the, the combination of the current U.S. administration and the pandemic had kind of halted the flow of migrants heading from Central America to the U.S., but now it will definitely restart. And let's see, like the U.S. has a new president-elect uh, that might be friendlier to immigration. So... I think it's definitely just a fact that climate change and migration is going to become an increasingly familiar reality. Benjamin Gaudet. Carlos, a question for you about the challenges for Nicaragua to attract the kind of international support reconstruction will need. We've heard about the challenges in Honduras from memories of the mishandling of Hurricane Mitch reconstruction and broad donor fatigue in the COVID-19 era. In Nicaragua, I assume these challenges are amplified by the isolation of the authoritarian regime, which the Trump White House famously lumped into its troika of tyranny alongside Cuba and Venezuela. So basically, I'm wondering what your expectations are for the international community playing a role in hurricane response in Nicaragua. Well, I think uh, it is a major challenge because of the dimension of the emergency. And I hope it will also be an opportunity for the Nicaraguan people to get access to international aid in a way that it would be transparent and accountable. But that will not take place unless there is uh, an understanding about the international community, about the real situation in which Nicaragua is going. I'll, I'll put you an example. Last week, for the first time, the IMF approved $183 million for the Nicaraguan government for COVID-19. Nicaragua has been the last uh, Central American government to have access to the IMF funds. But what about transparency in COVID-19? If you ask the PAHO, the Pan-American Health Organization, PAHO will say, we want to do uh, a mission in Nicaragua to establish the real facts about COVID-19. According to the government, 156 individuals have died because of COVID-19. That is the lowest number in Central America beyond uh, Belize. But the real facts, what we have researched with professional specialists on public health, is that the number is above 7,000 people who have died the highest number in Central America. Who's going to establish the truth? Well, Pajo could do that. And Pajo says, we don't trust the Nicaraguan system of health. We don't trust the information. They are not sharing the, the information about the test, the COVID test that they are doing. Okay, now the IMF is giving a loan to Nicaragua. Okay, will that be, should that be related to transparency? That's what I consider to be the opportunity but I don't think that is happening now. The IMF is saying, okay, we're going to have transparency about how the money is spent. That's fine. But we want to have information about human beings, about health, about the number of tests, about the impact of mortality in Nicaragua. The same thing could be argued about the impact of the hurricane. President Ortega was completely absent during the emergency. Nobody saw him addressing the nation or addressing the people 
to talk about what was going on. His wife, the vice president, Rosario Murillo, who made a kind of a monologue on, on radio and television, you can only hear her voice, is the one who speaks to the country. When the international community started talking about emergency, then Ortega appeared, and, and yes, he is interested as president to reestablish this uh, relationship with the international community to have access to funds. But for me, the, this is an opportunity, and there, and there should be establishing standards of transparency. Can you have international aid to the Nicaraguan government with censorship of the press? Can you have international aid with 104 political prisoners and no freedom of reunion, no freedom of mobilization in Nicaragua, and no accountability by the government? I'm not, I'm not saying that the political process should develop out of the international aid, but there must be an institutional umbrella that will establish at least the basis of transparency. So can I ask a question here? For This is for both of you, but uh, I think it's, it's really important. I, I want to draw out a little bit more, Carlos Fernando, what you've just been discussing about the expectations both in the, in the two countries affected in the region and what the international community should be expecting. If, if for, for each of you, and I'm going to start with Gina, what is the most important message at a time when very clearly across the Americas we see an enormous lack of trust in the political class and in the governing class? It's not exclusive to Nicaragua and Honduras. You see it everywhere. Uh, but it's extreme in the case of these two, given the events that are, are really underway still. It's not just that happened, but they're happening now. But what is the message that you think publics want to hear from the international community? Uh, and what should countries like the United States be asking for in return uh, from, from the governments involved? I think just a, a clear commitment to improve transparency and accountability and just governance and, and preparedness by Central American leaders um, that will ensure that all of the resources will be allotted and, and that, that they will accomplish and reach the purpose that they need to reach. And this will mitigate the frustration that, that's, that's being felt. I think that this will have a, an enormous uh, impact on the, on the COVID crisis as well. Like you have neighborhoods that are still completely flooded. Um, there's no light in many places. There's no drinking water. So for thousands of people wearing a mask has become the least important factor. They're just trying to survive. And I think I just want to hash out a bit more what Carlos said about statistics. I think that Central America appears to have contained the number of COVID cases and deaths um, better than many countries in the reg region like Brazil or Mexico. Um, they report death tolls that are among the lowest in the region, but it's probably because governments are refusing to disclose accurate information. So I think it should be a requisite before disimbursing any amount of money to ask and to demand that governments are giving true information. And if they're not trustworthy, then to have some sort of platform to make sure that this happens. I've been to so many shelters in the past weeks and they're so overcrowded. You can smell the effects of not having enough water or hygiene supplies. People are, are crowded in buildings that are overflowing and they, were, they weren't designed to, to be shelters and to hold this many people. So, you know, we're talking about countries where half the population don't have enough food to eat on any given day. So even without a disaster, they're challenging places just to make sure that every day 
needs are met. So I think that now is the time to to step up and and hopefully what happened this year and the pandemic and the catastrophic climate events will be a wake up call, not only for local government, but for the international community, for multilateral development banks and organizations and financial institutions, IMF, et cetera, to, to call for more aggressive actions in tackling climate change and, and having more responsible governments and more responsible communities as well. Well, good word. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, I guess I'd just like to, to abstract a little bit from the conversation. And by picking up on something very specific that Gina said earlier on, which really struck me, which was that the damage from, uh, from the storms and the hurricanes is equivalent to the entire national budget. And, and it just reminds me once again of the importance of not just institutions, which we talk about a lot at think tanks and in academia, but it, it, it really comes down to very often a matter of the ability to mobilize resources in, in, in countries um, throughout the world. And, you know, we've seen recently in Mexico that Mexico, southern Mexico, in particular the state of Tabasco, was hit very hard um, by storms. And uh, President Lopez Obrador went down there, showed his compassion with the people. But his, uh, his party, the ruling Morena party, had just got rid of the natural disaster funds that had been carefully sort of stored up over, over a number of years. And he'd sort of taken those funds and said they were to be used for other things. And, you know, ultimately the ability of the state to respond to disasters comes down to whether or not they have the money available. So yes, you can turn to international aid, you can turn to you know, foreign donors, but really what we need is we need governments with real fiscal powers and the ability to bring in tax revenue that they can spend on, these, uh, on, on natural disasters and on other crises that we're seeing. So I guess I'd like to ask, you know, not just the panelists, but I mean my colleagues as well, you know, is there a real conversation in Central America uh, about the, the desperate need to increase tax revenue so that governments have the capacity to respond? Or does it just come down to, as Carlos was suggesting earlier on, the fact that there's so little transparency that if we brought in extra money, it would probably go astray? This is a perennial issue. And in Central America, Guatemala is the textbook example of a country that provides among the lowest tax rates and and therefore the lowest amount per capita going into into government coffers but when you ask for the tax systems and the, and the revenue to be regularized you encounter enormous skepticism in not just the private sector but in the public itself because of the what they see as documented abuses and corruption in the expenditure side as well so th this is such a massive problem duncan it is absolutely central to the resolution of the whole range of governance problems that we see across the region. It's a, it's a matter of commitment as seen from the outside world. It's a matter of commitment. So I think it's important to, to know that Central America is a, is a region that has a population of more than 47 million people. And we are in an immediate need for reconstruction and socioeconomic recovery efforts. So transparent national budgets are necessary. And going back to what Ricardo said, Guatemala is going through civil unrest right now. There, over the weekend, there were massive protests. And it's because the, the budget for 2021 included a raise in taxes, which is what you're saying. And people just because they know that their taxes, even though um, taxes increase the, the, the national budget, um, they won't be used in the purposes that they're supposed to be used. 
and they cut off some important programs like food programs and, and food safety programs. So uh, I think that if this happens, if, if governments go through this way, instead of asking for loans or, or donations from the international communities, if they go like with an internal uh, economic policy of, of increasing taxes, they will encounter uh, resistance, like you said, from private sector and from normal people every day. So I, I do think that relief efforts must have a high level of transparency in the management of resources and just ensure that there's priorities that will be imposed by the emergency and invested in, and that they will be accountable for managing them in a systematic manner. So not in a year from now, like not let's close the year, I'll give you money and you can give me a report 20 years from now. No, like it has to be systematic, I think, and open. In Nicaragua, we have a structural problem of uh, tax inequality, but I don't think this is a problem that can be addressed uh, during this emergency. This is a government that is literally bankrupt for after three years of recession, and they are using they're raising taxes during recession, basically also to punish what they what they identify are enemies within the business sector that is a former ally from the government that now has been let's say supporting claims for free election so it is a much more complex situation i don't think this is a problem that can be addressed this is a question of emergency a signal from the international community for me and for nicaraguans i guess will be to see the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights coming back to Nicaragua, or the UN Special Office on Human Rights coming back to Nicaragua. These two institutions were expelled by Ortega's government a year ago. So before the money comes in, I think it will be important to have a, a human rights standard in order to address problems which are much more previous to this hurricane and COVID crisis which is what I have been describing as a police state, which is not a metaphor. It's, it's a real situation in which there is no freedom of reunion, freedom of mobilization, or freedom of the press. I am a reporter. My TV program is censored. I cannot air it in television or in cable, only through YouTube and Facebook. My newsroom is occupied by the police for the last two years, and, and that is an illegal act of occupation. And, and, and I'm... I'm just expressing an example, but there are 104 individuals in prison, political prisoners in the country. And this is a part of the abnormalities. So I don't think it will be possible to deal with this emergency unless these problems of lack of democracy, lack of accountability, lack of transparency are addressed. If the international community doesn't recognize that, I think it will be basically making a favor to the Ortega's dictatorship, uh, rescuing them because they are bankrupt and they're seeing this uh, crisis, this emergency as an opportunity to extend their political agony. Carlos, thank you for reminding us that uh, not all disasters are natural. There are man-made that you're dealing with as well. Chris Sands, you're next. Well, yeah, thank you very much. And it's been a powerful discussion. One of the things we've seen in Canada, really dating back to the 90s, the Canadians uh, are decent size aid donor, wealthy country, but they've become very corruption shy. And so they're constantly, as budgets have shrunk and other priorities have come up, corruption is the easy excuse to turn away from a more complicated problem. And given that they only have a few 
uh, you know, a much smaller aid budget than a country like the United States, this is it's been too, too easy for them to ignore the problems of Central America. Now, we've seen civil society organizations like the Canadian Red Cross, some of the church groups get very actively involved. But the Canadian government, um, I think, has chosen to use corruption on the institutional side in the recipient countries as one factor in just reallocating funds to other countries, which you know, at, at first makes some sense. You want to get good uh, good value for your aid dollar, but it really shows the, the mismatch between civil society, which is taking risks obviously, but to try to do service delivery and a Canadian government that may be sometimes more worried about its budget than it is worried about helping people. And I think one of the canaries in the coal mine of this particular situation will be for countries like Canada, not necessarily the United States, we often focus on the US, but for countries like Canada to step up. And I think invest in trying to do oversight and engagement in country, which they have the capacity to do to help encourage other donors to take risks with their money together. I mean, a socialization in a way of multiple countries investing together and sharing in the oversight might be a way to get past this problem. And it's the kind of thing that countries like Canada, but, but there are others, could take the lead in. But it's a different concept for them in terms of foreign aid. And I hear this story and I worry that, uh, that it may be that with building back better at home, Canadians put their own priorities ahead of, uh, of some of the priorities elsewhere in our region. Thanks, Chris. Cindy Arnson. One last question, perhaps, for Carlos Fernando. Gina had mentioned uh, the fact that a lot of the aid coming into Honduras was being given to civil society organizations because the government had such little credibility. Is that possible in Nicaragua, or are there strict limitations on the kind of external aid that civil society organizations can receive? That's a very important question because of uh, the recent legislation that the Nicaraguan government approved about a month ago. This is, this is a law called the La, La Ley de Regulación de Foreign Agents. They said that in the U.S. there is a similar law that you have to register to do lobby, but this is something completely different. This is more inspired in what Putin has done in Russia. So any Nicaraguan civil society organization, whether it is a natural person or a foundation, or a media outlet, whatever, who receives a donation, a grant from abroad, has to register in the Ministry of Government as a foreign agent and automatically will lose all its political rights. This is a law in order to restrict the access of civil society organizations to foreign donations. And, and it's already in effect. Organizations like Caritas from the Catholic Church has been restricted in their will to assist people with solidarity. The same thing has happened to other private sector institutions. There is a monopoly of the relationship between social assistance from the government to the people. I mean, a political monopoly that now has been is, is going to be instrumental through this law. So, yes. There is capacity in Nicaragua, in the private sector, in the church, in civil society organizations, but now they are under a situation of persecution by the state. This is the reality. So that law has to be derogated immediately. Also, the law that restricts freedom of the press, they call it the Ciber Delitos Law, is a law that has established in the legislation the crime of false information. Who decides what false information is? We don't know, the judges. But that means that a citizen or a journalist will spend 
between one to five years in prison because of committing the crime of divulgar false information. So we have to dismantle the legal repressive apparatus that the state has been reinforcing in the previous month. They are preparing for the so-called elections next year, probably not competitive, not transparent elections. Otherwise, they will not be establishing these more restrictive and repressive laws. But, but to answer your question, yes, there is capacity, but these uh, restrictions have to be dismantled. Well, um, unfortunately, we are out of time for what is an increasingly important discussion. And I think the enormity of the challenges is reflected in the sprawling nature of the discussion that you just conducted. Uh, this is too important for us to just leave it here. So we'll promise to come back and, and visit and, and how the region is doing as recovery efforts continue and some of these larger challenges that Carlos and Gina and the rest of you have laid out. So as always, thanks to our regulars, Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, Duncan, and Ricardo. And a special thanks to our special guest, Gina Kawasarita and Carlos Fernando Chamara. Thank you very much for joining us. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover on America's 360? Perhaps a guest you'd like to hear from? If so, you can reach us via email at americas360 at wilsoncenter.org. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, for all of us at the Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz, Angela Robertson, and Mariana Sanchez Ramirez. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.